Today's guest is simply one of the finest classical actors of this generation. While familiar to millions for his roles in two film trilogies, he has spent his life on the stage, playing everyone from Romeo and Hamlet to Uncle Vanya and King Lear. In more contemporary plays, he has been seen in Bent, Amadeus, Henceforward, and Waiting for Godot, and his U.S. appearances include Wild Honey, Dance of Death, The Promise, An Enemy of the People, and Acting Shakespeare. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and it is my great pleasure to welcome Sir Ian McKellen. Hello, thank you very much indeed. It was a lovely introduction. I want to start by asking about charity work. You are going to be in the U.S. Yes. shortly um, to host a benefit for an organization called Only Make Believe, and I know this is not your first time. No, I did over. it last year. Uh, uh, Dina Hammerstein is the widow of uh, Oscar Hammerstein's um, son, Jamie. And when he died, she decided to t- turn her spare time over to the two things that she loved most, which is uh, children and theatre, and she put the two together and decided to, quite an original idea, I think, take um, performers, comedians, um, storytellers, singers, people who like audience participation, uh, in small groups into uh, long-stay children's hospitals, principally in Manhattan, where she lives, but elsewhere too. And it's an idea that I've seen uh, in practice uh, and uh, marveled at and and wonder why it hasn't been adopted all over the world because what happens when you take kids who are living away from the comforts of family in the discomforts of uh, uh, trying to get their diseases or their complaints or their disabilities uh, reordered, um, there they are stuck in hospital and... uh, when these entertainers come in and sing some songs and tell a story and hand out hats to be worn to kids in wheelchairs or on um, crutches or lying back on their beds, uh, the joy which is generated in the room is knocks a first night on Broadway into a cocked hat. I mean, th- this is theatre in its total essence and reaching straight into the hearts and the... And the, and the uh, spirit of these uh, little people. And, not surprisingly, but it's a bit of a miracle, the doctors say that kids who've attended Only Make Believe sessions uh, get better quicker than those who don't. <laughs> so, how could I not want to help Dina out? And, and last year we, we did a, a big benefit at the Schubert Theatre, and that's what we're doing again on Monday the 1st of November, and I'm coming over uh, back to Broadway, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll be there doing a bit of acting and uh, introducing people who'll be doing a lot of singing and dancing, I expect. You must be asked to to do a lot, to lend your name to a lot of charities. Certainly you're involved in the National Youth Theatre here yeah. and other organizations. How do you even choose what to be involved in and, and when you have to say no? It's... Um it is a problem for people in public eye. They're thought to add luster to other people's operations, and I do get uh, a number of requests. But I, I think on the whole I restrict myself to helping out, at least in person, um, groups that about which, in, in which I feel I'm an expert. I, I, and I'm an expert only on two things. That's acting, because I've simply been at it for so long, and hence my connection with the performers that may only make believe. 
Uh, and uh, the other area of my life in which I'm an expert is, is being gay, and, and I feel I've got something uh, individual to contribute to any debate on, on gay issues. And although I have strongly held views on, on many other matters, I, I don't talk about them publicly because I think, well, why should I take advantage of access to the media to talk about things when I'm not really an expert and probably just repeating other people's ideas but 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 on gay issues and on acting I, I know what I'm talking about and and um, of course I'm sentimental about uh, Dina's charity because uh, she's she's an old friend and I've seen it in action hmm. well since you say you will speak up about issues on what you that you know well um you recently gave an interview where you expressed concern about theatrical training for young people and which uh, the headline read, Ian McKellen warns theater is at risk from fall in asking, acting standards. <laughs> um, was that hyperbolic? Yes, it certainly was. I mean, it, it happens, you know, you, you do an interview uh, to promote the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain, of which I'm a vice president, and uh, I have been a supporter of for a long time, although I was never a member. It, it was started just after I was of an age when I might have joined. What, what the youth theatre does is, is take young people interested in the theatre from up and down the country, brings them to London, where they they rehearse plays, but they have workshops and, um, and, and training as actors and stage managers and, and so on. And they do quite elaborate productions. I've well, heard. they do. Some, yeah. some of them are, some of them are not. Yeah. So they, 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 they do new plays and old plays, and big theatres, small theatres. And... Uh, uh, I was asked to do an interview to promote their the latest um, shows, and I did, and, and a question came about what did I think about training actors, and a, a rather misleading headline uh, came out of that. No, I, th I think I was just uh, making the point that young people have made to me that uh, it doesn't matter what training you get and how much of it, uh, what in the end is going to turn you into a good actor is, is, is getting practice. And uh, that is a big problem. Where does a young person start off? Uh, in my day, it was relatively easy. There were uh, regional repertory companies in every city in, in the nation, all needing young actors. And, and it was relatively easy, if you were any good, to, to get a toehold in there and then maybe stay with that company for a year or more, as I did and do a lot of plays very quickly uh, of different sorts, uh, learning from your uh, betters who are uh, long-established actors who are working there. And uh, that was a wonderful apprenticeship. That doesn't exist anymore. And um, I think I was also asked whether the National Youth Theatre, which doesn't aim to train professional actors, but was in fact a better sort of school than... Um, the more traditional uh, ones... Well, I, I'm not qualified to really say about that, and... Uh, the point of the National Theatre is not to train people to be uh, professionals, although um, Helen Mirren and many others have been through the National Youth Theatre, but Colin Firth, I think. Uh, there is in the UK, and I know in the United States, uh, an under underpinning of, of all the professionals, uh, which is the, the enthusiasm of amateurs. Um, amateur actors in, in small... Um, running small theatres like the Little Theatre Guild, of which I'm patron here in the United Kingdom, schools productions, university productions, uh, church Sunday school productions, all putting on plays uh, and uh, attracting audiences to see them, quite apart from all the professionalism that's going on. Uh, and I think um, two things about that. One, it reveals an intense 
interest in, in live performance, which isn't satisfied entirely by all the professionals going on. There has to be the amateur work there, but people want to go and see. And, and also reveals that the business of acting, and after all, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, Shakespeare's words, uh, is the case. And, and acting is a very human activity. It's, we're all good at it, at least when we're kids. Professional actors, because they go on being children in their imagination, uh, get better at it, and the rest perhaps forget that they used to be able to act very well when they were playing cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers or whatever it was in the playground or in the street. And uh, But amateur actors keep in touch with their uh, uh, imaginations and, and, and put on play. So I, I don't feel myself detached from amateurs. And uh, this was the whole mix of what I was talking about, but out of it came this rather exaggerated, uh, as if I was going on some crusade against um, drama schools, which I'm not equipped to do, because I, I don't know very much about them. I didn't go to one myself. Well... I wanted to ask you that. You went to Cambridge. Uh, yes, I went to university to study English. Mm. Hmm. So when you – did you do theatre at Cambridge? Was there Were there mm. extracurricular programs? Well, or? I began as an amateur uh, – as an amateur and have remained so in my heart. I think I did a lot of acting at school and, and, and with the local little theatre amateur group. I did a lot of theatre going, which was how I got interested in the theatre. I wasn't one of those people who liked showing off and therefore found himself in plays. It was I, I, I was someone who went to see plays and worked, wanted to find out how it was done. Mm. And so wandered backstage and started uh, acting at Cambridge. I, I acted in 21 plays. Not for, There's no drama faculty uh, to this day. So this is all done in your spare time, or rather... <laughs> the time when you should probably should be studying for your degree. Uh, uh, but at the end of three years and 21 plays, in the company of people like Corin uh, Redgrave and uh, Trevor Nunn and Peter Cook and Derek Jacobi and, and many others who became professionals, uh, I thought I'd give it a go. But when I arrived at Cambridge, I had no intention of being a professional actor. I thought I would just be... I don't know, I thought I might teach or some worthy job, but the, uh, I'd be acting in my spare time. Well, now I act full-time. When you got out of university, how did you make the transition to professional? Did you continue to do amateur shows for a time? No, it was very easy. As I was saying, the, the, these repertory companies of, of, of actors under a year's contract doing a different play every two weeks in their civic theatre, paid for by civic money and by, by the audiences uh, uh, at the box office, uh, employed young actors uh, to play as cast. That means we play small parts, big parts, suitable parts, unsuitable parts, old parts, young parts, um, singing, dancing, everything. Uh, and uh, so there would be no time for me to do it be doing any other work that was it and and i did it for three years and and uh, without it i couldn't possibly have achieved anything i mean you, i think i think actors are of two sorts either those who spring from the from the cradle ready to perform people like kenneth branner i mean he didn't need to go to drama school he just needed to start <laughs> acting i've always thought that was true of derek jacoby as well and then there are the sloggers like me people who um, Rather shy and not 
natural uh, show-offs, uh, not, not naturally um, wanting to stand up or in public draw attention to myself. But um, uh, and and I needed time to learn how to do the job, and uh, it was good because that's what I still think I'm doing, and uh, it keeps me fresh and interested and. Always on the lookout for things I've not done before, in the types of plays or or, or, or the type of part. So I'm uh, I'm still a student, but I, but one who didn't go to drama school. You're modest when you say you're a slogger and the others were natural because you talk about these three seasons. It's fun to look at some of what you did. I, I don't know what role you played in Toad of Toad Hall in 61, 62. Or... I played the, the, the <laughs> chief uh, weasel. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> but you know, I see that, the Arts Theatre Company, the Nottingham Playhouse. But you got yeah. to London quickly. You didn't have to spend years out in the region. Well, it's the beauty of the United Kingdom that it's small, you know. So if you're if you're acting as I was in Nottingham or Ipswich or Coventry, these are cities that you can reach within an hour, an hour and a half if you live in London. So there isn't that much to stop producers or prospective employers uh, coming to see young actors like me, and the word goes around, you know, the theatre in, in the UK is a small family affair, uh, uh, and if someone's having a success in a regional company in those days, um, everyone else had a sense of it, and uh, so it wasn't a big leap, uh, really, for me to um, leave Nottingham Playhouse, where I'd been playing in Shakespeare, directed by Tyrone Guthrie, uh, in new plays, um, uh, to come and do a new play uh, in London for a producer who to whom I'd been recommended. So that was a scent of flowers. That was, was that? a scent of flowers, uh, and uh, as by chance Maggie Smith came to see her old friend, the film star Phyllis Calvert, and and was rather taken with with my bravado. I think in changing the wheel of, of a bicycle on stage uh, and mending a puncture. Only pretending to, Maggie. I wasn't really doing it, but anyway. Uh, she recommended me to Laurence Olivier, who was running the National Theatre at the Old Vic Theatre in London, and they were looking for a, a juvenile to be in Franco Zeffirelli's production of Much Ado About Nothing that Maggie would be in. And so Olivier came to see me um, in Centre Flowers, and uh, I was ill. I, I, I had desperate influenza, and uh, I, I couldn't get out of my bed. And uh, so when I eventually went to audition for Olivier, he said, you owe me a performance. And uh, <laughs> so he got it at the interview, and uh, and that's how I got into his company, uh, with Albert Finney, Mike Gambon, Anthony Hopkins, Robert Stevens, Lynn Raygrave, Billy Whitelaw, Joan Plywright, Derek Jacobin. Uh, we were all there together. Uh, and uh, after I'd done that for 18 months, I thought, you know, I'm never going to get on in this company because there are too many, it's too much competition. <laughs> <laughs> so I left uh, to to go and do other things. But it was a wonderful start and, and got me to London and um, where I've lived ever since. So we're talking there about 1965. Quite remarkably, it was only three years after that that you, uh, actually two years after that, that you made your Broadway debut. 
you'd done a show at yes. the Oxford Playhouse That's right. called The Promise. This is how things work in the UK. Uh, yeah. Oxford, only an hour from London, uh, had its own company, and young Judy Dench and even younger Ian McShane and I were in a three-handed Russian, modern Russian play called The Promise by Alexei Arbutsov. This was seen uh, in um, Oxford, and after the first night, on, to which they'd invited some national critics, not far for them to come from London, and they were interested in seeing a modern Russian player in, in the middle of the Cold War. That was an unusual thing. And uh, the cast, having, acquit having acquitted themselves reasonably well, perhaps went to a restaurant for a meal. And Oxford's a small city, and not many uh, restaurants are open late at night. And, and we, we arrived in a restaurant where all the critics were. They decided not to go back to London and spend the night there. And so we had the, we smiled nervously at each other, and eventually they beckoned us over, and, and, and so the cast and the director, <laughs> and probably the author, and all the critics, uh, had, and shared a meal. I've never known it before or since. <laughs> and, of course, we got rave reviews, rave reviews, and were on for a year. Hmm. Uh, and after a year, uh, Judy had had enough, and so had he, uh, but Ian and the other Ian and I were both keen to pick up the offer to go to Broadway and with Eileen Atkins we, we played ingloriously for 27 performances there and that was it we, <laughs> we, we were a total flop uh, I think because it was the Cold War and, and uh, Americans were suspicious of anything which was um, pro-Russian uh, uh, made Russians seem like uh, ordinary even admirable human beings it, that this was not something that wasn't a popular point of view uh, and also there was some concern that there was an entirely British production coming over. I mean, well, well, it was a Russian play. Why shouldn't Americans play the parts? Why did they have to have the English? And uh, there was a, a parade outside the theatre by uh, members of uh, Equity. Really? The, the Actors' Union. Uh, Brits go home, you know, all that. So the combination of rather indifferent reviews and, and, and that publicity... Um, uh, meant that we really weren't welcome, and, and uh, that was the end of my uh, first attempt to play on Broadway. But that's an extraordinarily fast journey. You got out of university in 1961. You spent a year and a half in Olivier's company. Mm. You've played the West End. You've been protested on Broadway. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you said you got out of the company, the Olivier company, so that you could move up. It seems yeah. you moved up very quickly. Was was the failure on Broadway in any way daunting to you? Um, it was a disappointment, of course, but a relief in the sense that I wasn't going to have to spend a year away from home when I could be doing other plays. And I remember Phyllis Calvert saying to me when A Scent of Flowers, the first play uh, I did with her uh, in the West End, only lasted nine weeks. She took me to one side and said, you are, oh, you're so lucky. You've had great reviews. Anybody who matters seen you. You now don't have to slog your way through this play for the next six months, earning a rather small salary uh, in the hope that the audience turns up. You can get on to the next job. So the worst thing can happen for a, for a young actor is to be stuck in a hit. Nobody, nobody knows you can do anything else. But it's luck. It's, all, it's not all luck, but you have to be ready for luck. I suppose that's true of, of all aspects of life, but particularly as an actor. The luck of deciding to go and work in Oxford when some of my contemporaries might have thought, no, 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 Oxford's too far, it's, that's in the provinces, you'll never be noticed there. The chance of that play being a success, 
the chance of a far-sighted Broadway producer, uh, Morton Gottlieb, wanting to bring it to Broadway. Uh, and suddenly there I am. Uh, and, and then thrown out, well, that's the way of the world. And the, uh, it taught me what is was blindingly, crucially different from, from Broadway in those days, and London in those days, which was that London entirely depended on... Um, um, the subsidised theatre, theatre that was uh, under, uh, underpinned by public money from the government or local authority, uh, allowing actors and companies to perform continually and, and often take risks in the sort of work they did. That work, if it was any good, came to London. London received all that and depended on it. Uh, and there was a sense in London at the time that the point of doing theatre was not to be fa certainly famous uh, uh, or, or even rich, even in a, a good living. The point was to uh, perform the best place possible in, in, in the best way possible. Uh, and that's uh, remained what I've always tried to do ever since. Now, Broadway uh, was a much more dangerous place. It was There were, there were tigers and lions and prowling the streets you felt at times and, and there were going to be victims and, and we were one of them and it seemed in those days you were either a hit or, a, or an absolute flop uh, that was not, wasn't then true of England uh, in London plays could, could stay on for quite a long time attracting audiences who just lifted the uh, weekly financial take above the crucial figure but were not selling out. It didn't matter, and in um, that way, you contributed to the uh, the life of the the city and the country. But uh, uh, I think perhaps those differences have changed, and and uh, the West End is much more commercial than it used to be, and therefore very long running shows and shows that want to nip in for a short period uh, find it difficult to get theatres, frankly, unless they have major stars in them. Oh well, that yes, that helps. You said that there was the advice that for a young actor, it wasn't good to be trapped in a show for too long. I want to ask you more generally, do you enjoy a long run or do you? would you still like the opportunity to do, as you once did, you know, a dozen plays in a season? I think I've grown to, to like the idea of, of long runs, although I, I, I've done a few of them. A year in an Alan Aikman play uh, in the West End, uh, a year in Amadeus, uh, Peter Schaffer's play on Broadway. Uh, in repertoire the, for the Royal Shakespeare Company or the National Theatre, plays that have, have run over three years, though not playing every night. Mm -hmm. And Waiting for Godot, which I've just been doing, 360 performances spread over a couple of years. Uh, if the play is good enough, if the play supports the actor, if the play is deep enough, you can go on doing it for an awful long time and still feel dissatisfied uh, with the work you've done. And when I did King Lear, um, uh, for we brought that, didn't we, to uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music, uh, and oh, and, and a world tour as well. I, whew, at the end of that, I, I shaved. Thank goodness, took the beard off. And thought, well, when am I going to do Lear again? Because I haven't cracked it. And I, I notice other actors have had the same experience. And the same is true of the God. I would love to play Estragon uh, again. Now, uh, 
when I was a kid, uh, I think I, what I enjoyed doing was, was doing as many plays as possible, trying myself out, seeing what I was good at, uh, and, and, and uh, identifying what I wasn't good at, and doing something about it. I wasn't good at comedy. Dreadful. Hmm. Dreadful at comedy. I think the thing I'm most proud of in my life is that uh, I've learnt how to get a laugh on stage uh, without the audience knowing that I'm uh, making them laugh. So that that you can't learn that other than by uh, experience. And doing a wide variety of plays, not getting stuck in the classics, although that's what I'm best known for. So I... Um, and yet at the same time, when, when, I, when I was young, I got the sense, looking at other people's careers, that it was a foolish move to throw away your hits. If you had a hit, if everybody thought you were good, if you thought yourself you were good, in a play that merited continual attention, and why stop doing it? Why willfully say, no, I'm going off to do this other piece of work about which you can know nothing in, in terms of... Uh, it, how it's going to work out. So, um, and I think that I've, I've held on to that too, that if I have a success, as, as we did with um, Waiting for Godot on tour here in the UK and then in the West End, at, at about the same time that the uh, uh, Roundabout, I think, was doing their production with uh, Nathan Lane and John, and Bill John Goodman and, John and Bill, Goodman, Bill Irwin, yep. yes, and who played Lucky? And John Glover. John Glover, yes. I'm sorry I didn't see them at it, uh, uh, but I couldn't as I was doing it myself. We did that initially, and Patrick Stewart, who was playing Didi, had to leave, and I couldn't bear it. I literally cried when I came off from the last performance with Patrick, sobbed in the wings, because I thought I'd never be as happy again. But I was, because I revi we revived it. <laughs> and I did it with Roger Rees, and, and we did it uh, for a re return visit to the West End and then went to Australia, New Zealand, and, and um, South Africa. Well, you said you'd l you would go back to this play. You said you didn't feel you cracked Lear. Let's stay with Gatto for a minute. You had the opportunity to do the same production with two different actors, yeah. both of whom you now acknowledge you enjoyed the experience enormously. Mm. Yeah. Would you want the opportunity to do it yet again with different actors? Would you want to do it in a different production? What, Or is it simply the chance to keep exploring it exactly in the vein that you were doing it? Yes, there, 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 were, there were areas of the play that I thought were unresolved in our production and in, in, in our performances, and it would be nice to get those right. The other side of it is I would like people to have an opportunity to come and see it because I think it's very good. Uh, and there's a lot of Godot around, and not all of it, I think, perhaps is as good as it might be. But um, but you can't go on doing a play forevermore until everybody's seen it. <laughs> you know, it's not... That is not what theatre's about. Theatre uh, uh, is for a relatively small group of people sitting in a darkened place watching. Uh, 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 but they know they're there. It's something special. You're going to see a movie... You're watching shadows on a screen. But millions of us can go and see movies, and we're all seeing the same movie. And I don't know, last night I went to see the uh, 25th anniversary production in, in a big stadium here of, in London of Les Miserables with an astonishing cast, 500 people, and a full orchestra, massive orchestra, 20,000 people watching. 
And then I opened up the program and saw all the, produ- oh, the other productions that uh, Trevor Nunn and uh, Cameron McIntosh had put on of that show. Broken records in every country in the world. So there's no one actor who could be um, singing Vengeance in every production mm. of Les Miserables. It's, of course. Uh, but you do have to draw a line eventually, and I draw the line when I'm, I think, oh, I've, I've done it now for my own satisfaction. And when I know there's another job that uh, is, is, is potentially interesting on the horizon. I read, and I wonder if this is true, that when Sean Mathias first talked about the Godot with you, he talked about Judy Dench playing opposite you. <laughs> well, uh, who wouldn't uh, want to play opposite Judy Dench? And it was, we were old mates, and we did the Macbeths together, and many other things about that period a long time ago, and we are always looking for something to do. So when uh, Sean and I thought we'd like to do God, uh, the, the fir- I think the first person he thought of <laughs> would, would, would be Judy Dench. It wasn't allowed by the estate. The they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't consider it. They turned down Judy Dench to be in their play. Uh, stupid, I think, but uh, there we go. And, and probably it was better. It would have been probably a bit distracting to the audience to try and work out why it was a woman, you know. Though sex, sex doesn't enter that play. It's odd. It's one of the few plays that, in which... I think there are a couple of dirty jokes, and that's it. Hmm. Uh, Go-Go, my character, refers to his um, fiancée, a marriage that didn't happen, and that's about it. Hmm. It's a boy's play, waiting for God. Well, you've said it's an old man's play. Well, it is, yes. The old boys. Hmm. Yeah, I I think that was a simple revelation that we had, and maybe others have had it too, but... Uh, the the original cast were all uh, above sixty, and and three and two of us were above seventy. So lines um, about bad feet and prostate and short term memory loss and the past were all of which creep into the early scenes of, of the play. I think set up a, a relationship between Didi and Gogo, which is fifty years old. Mm. And if that's the case, um, then they're, they're in their 70s. Mm. Uh, and the original production, well, not the original, the first British production, the man playing my part was 24. So you wonder whether the play's initial, the initial hostility to the play or, or misunderstandings about it, confusions, were more to do with the production uh, than the play. Mm-hmm. The play these days doesn't seem uh, remarkable in, 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 in a challenging way. It's, it's, um, maybe we just got used to the idea of, of, of Beckett's um, openness and uh, clarity and sparseness with regard to production values, but um, I don't know. But it, it, it helps to, to know that they are old. Mm-hmm. Mm. Speaking of old man plays, you played Lear. That's an old years ago. Yeah. Now, the first thing about playing Lear is any actor of your achievement has to decide when to play Lear. Because certainly we have had people play Lear when they're younger and they simply play old. Mm. Was it a case of opportunity or was it that you decided now is the time and made the opportunity? No, I was invited, but maybe I'd been invited before to play it. I don't know. But if the Royal Shakespeare Company says, do you want to play King Lear for us? Uh, you really have to th- think up 
some very good reasons why you shouldn't do it, mm-hmm. if, if you're me. Now, I played Hamlet when I was exactly the right age. I was, I was 30. Perfect age for Hamlet. You've got enough experience behind you as an actor uh, uh, and enough experience of life. Um, and, and, and Hamlet, I think, if you work it out, is actually 30 by the end of the play, although he's been an undergraduate at the beginning of it. Uh, I played Macbeth and Coriolanus, uh, heroic uh, soldiers on the battlefield, at an age when I could conceivably... I have their physical prowess. I was a bit late with Romeo. I, w- I was 38 and spent far too much of my time trying to be 16, you know. Uh, so, Lear, yes, you've got to judge it. You've got to have the energy to play it. And although Shakespeare provides you nicely with a 45-minute acting break, um, that is very hard work on you physically and emotionally and mentally and so you can't leave it until you're 80-odd, which is his real age, unless you happen to be freakishly fit. So 70 or whatever I was, 69, a bit early perhaps, uh, seemed a good time. I mean, I, I, could, I was in touch with old age, could feel it within me, but um, I still had the energies that are required from the actor. Having said what you just said about how hard the role is, you have also just said that you feel you didn't crack it and you'd like to have a go at it again. Mm. What leaves you dissatisfied with your performance and is there something that you feel you would need in order to to do it to your own satisfaction? We were doing it in a theater uh, which had a thrust stage that is a big rectangle. This is the first time it was done? Yes, at, mm-hmm. at the Courtyard Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon. The audience of about four or 500 people sit around the perimeters of the thrust. And uh, Trevor Nunn, who doesn't much favour that sort of staging, uh, um, wasn't happy directing for it. And... Uh, Subsequently, we played in quite unsuitable theatres, too large. We played the, the Royce Hall in the uh, um, University of California in Los Angeles, an unfortunate space for acting, and, and, and others elsewhere. And I just thought we never really got it in the right place. We did when we brought it to London, and we played at the New London Theatre, where Cats had played originally. And that was very congenial. So that was one aspect of it. And, and another was the, pers- the, the some of the casting was, I thought, not as strong as it might have been in an ideal production. There are 13 great parts in King Lear, and unless they're all played to the hilt, I suspect the audience doesn't get the play. Mm. And I suppose maybe I'm just being, I'm dreaming and hoping that somewhere 13 brilliant actors will want to... <laughs> Help me to King Lear again. I would think there are many. And you've played some of those other 13 roles. You've been in productions of Lear, but just not as Lear. Hmm. Yes, I um, played Edgar. Notoriously difficult part. Uh, We brought that to the Brooklyn Academy of Music as well. 
and, and, and uh, all our scenery. We were doing five plays with a, with a company called the Actors' Company, which I helped to found a, a, a democratically run group of um, actors who were a little bit nervous about the power, the over, over stretched power, perhaps, of directors who run theatres as opposed to just direct plays. Anyway, we, we, we arrived in... Uh, New York, and, and all our scenery was kept in uh, back by the uh, customs people, customs or, or people working on the uh, unloading ships. So we just had to announce, well, here we are, uh, but we don't have our costumes and we don't have our set. And now, think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs of the receiving earth. Instruction in the beginning of Shakespeare's Henry V. So that's what the audience did, and uh, I've rarely known a more enthusiastic first night audience because mm-hmm. they 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 were sharing with us. Uh, there was a problem, and uh, it was a problem that fortunately doesn't matter too much in Shakespeare because the least important part of a Shakespeare production is the design. Hmm. Shakespeare's original productions didn't have designs; they were just done in the theatre with some costumes. Yet. In modern Shakespeare, the visual concept is often so strong. I think of the Richard III that mm. you did, which yeah. was placed in a specific place at a yeah. specific time. Yeah. Does that ultimately – are you playing the time period or are you simply playing the role and that is draped around you? The, mo- the motive for doing Richard III, which eventually became a film – uh, in a modern period, was so that the or- the clothes that people were wearing uh, helped the audience's understanding of the play. Yeah. For those who didn't see it, we shouldn't say it wasn't modern as in present day. It was roughly 1930s Europe of fashion. Within society. my lifetime, so yeah. I'm, I'm, going okay. to go, I'm going to go on calling it modern. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, as if uh, uh, a dangerous dictator had managed to take over the controls of of the United Kingdom, as was happening all over Europe at the time, in Italy and Germany uh, and Spain and and their various conquests eventually. But Richard III, uh, as with many of Shakespeare's plays, is concerned with a a society uh, or or, particularly that part of society which is the government. Who runs the show? Who's in power? Who's in control? Uh, and Shakespeare reveals this to you by uh, um, introducing you to a family of royal people who have just emerged from a civil war, which they were slaughtering each other. Richard's brother is now king, the old Duke of York. Uh, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. York. And they have hangers-on, they have civil servants, they, they have um, uh, the whole of the military, uh, they have the church. And if the audience doesn't understand that that man is an archbishop and that man is a sort of prime minister and that man is in charge of the exchequer uh, and these are um, – this man is a general but this man is a, is a private in, in the army, you're not going to understand the play. So put it in – modernish dress, then soldiers are suddenly in uniforms. 
perfectly clear. So are the church people. Uh, so so are the civil servants and and, and and the royalty and the way they behave to each other. You can reveal the hierarchy there. If everyone's in doublet and hose, if everyone's in all-purpose Shakespeare pageant Elizabethan costumes, is it any wonder you sit through these plays and find them boring because you simply don't understand them? Through no fault of Shakespeare. So I, in that sense, I think our production was helpful. But... You know, I, if you're lucky enough to see a Shakespeare play being rehearsed and perhaps see a final performance before the actors put on their costumes and move into the theatre, you'll probably have as great an experience as you'll ever have with Shakespeare. And, and it won't be, be... Not because there are no costumes and, and, and no scenery to distract you, but they won't be there and there'll be no lighting either. It'll probably be daylight that you're watching the play. But you'll hear it and you'll listen to it. Uh, and um, also you'll probably be sitting a lot closer than you will be in a theatre and you'll see everything that's going on. Uh, and then the design isn't as important. But the minute you start playing to a thousand people in a, in a theatre in a darkened place and they've paid a lot of money, they want something to look at, don't they? Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a number of your classical roles. I want to briefly play word association. I just want to mention the part, and if you would just say the first thing that comes to mind that you recall about playing it. Iago. Uh, there's no such thing as evil. Uh, I, I don't think people are born evil, and, and uh, he has good reasons, or bad reasons, for doing what he does, but he has reasons. He's not just born evil. Prospero. Oh! Very, very difficult. Uh, and, and actors will tell you, n not an enjoyable play to do. Audiences, on the other hand, adore it. And, and in our production, not very good. I'd, I never quite learned the, learned the words. I, it was, it was not an achieved production up in Yorkshire, in the north of England. Audiences adored it. A woman, I met a woman afterwards this isn't a one word answer I'm sorry but no I, I don't want one word answers oh, okay. I just want your first thoughts I uh, we, we'd had the first night and, and I was coming to have a drink front of house and there were two women uh, clearly a mother and daughter coming out wiping their eyes and they'd been into the into the toilets and oh they said oh thank you thank you thank you my daughter brought me she said I, I didn't realise I was going to come and see a play a play about reconciliation. So she'd clearly just made it up with her daughter as a result of having seen a play about a man who makes it up with uh, his daughter uh, and uh, uh, and his brother, maybe. And uh, so, yeah, you're having difficulties with the verse, you're having difficulties with the costume, you're having difficulties with the magic. But if the audience is hearing the words, you know, they'll do an awful lot of the work for you because <laughs> they bring their lives to it. Hmm. Richard II. Well, I was young. I played it in alternate nights with Edward II by Christopher Marlowe at the Edinburgh Festival and, and elsewhere. And it was my first big outing as a, in a Shakespeare lead. And I was sort of accepted from then on as one of the one of the young actors who should be allowed to do the classics. Uh, it was a very, very good, clear production, and I was all right in it. I mean, I, I fitted in. I, I've, I've seen bits of it recently, and it's, it distresses me. Uh, 
bits of your performance. It was, yes. it was taped or filmed. Yes, yes, mm. yes, yes. You know, you're never quite as good as you think you are or want to be or hope to be. But the performance was the performance gauged for film or it was simply a recording of the oh, stage Oh, no, it version? was – It was. The, they were both on stage, but, right. but both productions were televised by the, uh-huh. the BBC. And uh, – I don't know whether Richard II made it to America. Edward II certainly did and was thought to be an astonishing, outrageous play because two men kissed in it. And, and, and my character, Edward, has a, a lover, a male lover. Um, so that perhaps got more attention for, well, from some people. Macbeth. Macbeth, Judy Dench was uh, the best possible Lady Macbeth. Uh, but then I, you could say that about a lot of other people in that production. Bob Peck, the late Bob Peck as Macduff. Roger Rees as uh, Malcolm. Ian McDermott from Star Wars as the Porter. And only a company of 12 or 13, was it? Probably 13. Unlucky 13. And we just, we just sat around a magic circle that John Napier had painted on the floor of the hut in Stratford upon Avon where we did it and Trevor Nunn shut the doors at the top of the show and didn't let the audience out for the duration of the play which was f- under two hours wow hmm. if you if you get Macbeth uh, spoken for you in pl- close proximity un- in under two hours you go on a roller coaster of that man's curdled imagination and you have a wonderful time, <laughs> and and some of that was captured on the on the DVD, which I think is the perhaps the best screen Shakespeare I've been involved with, and I think is superior to most. Trevor said he was going to photograph the text, by which he meant he was not going to photograph Scotland or, or aspects of design which were nothing to do with the play or were an addition to the play. So it was just the. Sc- the words that came over, there's very little scenery, it's mostly close-up, and, uh, and Judy Dench. I want to ask you about a couple of new, the new newer plays hmm. that you did. Um, first of all, I want to ask about Bent, which was, in its day, in particular, very groundbreaking hmm. for its subject matter, yeah. gay men during the Holocaust. Yes, it, it's it's um, it's a remarkable play and go, goes on being successful successful because of it, in that it presents on stage a whole variety of different sorts of gay people on, on the way they react to their sexuality. Some keep it hidden, some flaunt it, uh, some try to come to terms with it, some avoid it, uh, some hate it, uh, and. These guys are all on stage together. Some have been turned mad because of it. 1979 we did it. It was only in 1967, 12 years before, that that it had been first legal for me to make love in the United Kingdom. Uh, and, And still was not legal under the age of 21 when we did the play. I did not say I was gay, as Martin Sherman did, the author, when I was doing it. Uh... I was still nervous about people knowing I was gay. Um, a little bit for my career, because um, I, I thought, would I ever be allowed to play 
would I ever have been allowed to play Romeo if, if the audience had known that I really fancied Mercutio more than Juliet. There are plenty of people who, who read the play and think that could still be the case. <laughs> well, good point. But uh, there was that. But there were also just it was in the air that you just didn't rock the boat and you stayed quiet and got on with your life. And my life was that of a very happily uh, married man in the sense that I was living with a long-term partner and, and it was perfectly open about it. There was no employer or employee of mine that didn't know I was gay. And uh, But I hadn't actually crucially talked to the press about it or members of my close family. So Bent... Uh, I wonder if I didn't do Bent in order to get myself out of the closet, in a sense. Except it took me a, a few years more. It was 1988, I believe. Yes, another, you... nearly another t- uh, ten years. But Bent was a challenging play to do. Uh, one I, I really cared about because I thought it was wonderfully educative in, in that nobody really seemed to know about the pink triangles and they, they were the gay equivalents of the Jewish yellow stars in the labor camps under the Third Reich and uh, their history has never been really uh, popularly known and Bent has gone around the world educating people about it and um, so to have been in the very first production is uh, by chance a feather in my cap Hmm. You did it again ten years later? We did, we did. After you'd come out? After we'd come out, yes Uh, I was part of a campaign to, to stop the government passing a very nasty law that would have inhibited schools uh, teaching the truth about homosexuality and even discussing it in a positive way. Uh, And we wanted to start a a professional lobby that might prevent this law which was passed, unfortunately, or any others like it being passed in the future by starting a, a professional lobby company, which we call Stonewall. Uh... And to raise money to start Stonewall, we had the idea that we put on a one-night-only performance of Bent, a revival of Bent. It was about the gay situation, which couldn't have been more appropriate. Sean Mathias, uh, an ex-lover of mine, directed it. Um, Michael Cashman, a successful actor, the, the first man in a soap opera in the United Kingdom to kiss another man. He's now a member of the European Parliament, frightfully distinguished member of the Labour Party here. Uh, Alex Jennings, one of our uh, leading uh, actors of the younger generation. Um, in the crowd, as it were, was um, Ian Charlson, the late lamented Ian Charlson, uh, Ray Fiennes, Richard E. Grant, and, and a hundred extras uh, in the Dachau scenes uh, in, who came on in their dismal uniforms uh, for, for gruel to get them through the day at, at the end of Act One. Um, and we had, of course, a partisan audience, one night only. We'd rehearsed the play for three weeks. Uh, it was a huge success. And the National Theatre said, will you bring your production and make it part of the National Theatre repertoire, which we did. Hmm. And then, then moved it to the West End. So it was wonderful to get back to Bent at a time when I could put my hand on my heart and say, this is a play which I believe in and care about and love. When it was first done, I used to say, oh, no, it wasn't about the gay situation. It was about. It was just about humanity and man's uh, inhumanity, but no, it's more more specific than that. Now, we've covered a decade with the two productions of Bent, but after the original, 
you did come back to Broadway after after your first marvelous experience with The Promise um, hmm. with Amadeus. Hmm. Um, can you tell me about playing Salieri? That was it directly after. Yes, that was directly after doing Bent, wasn't it? First time. Uh, well, no. Was it Othello? Uh, if I'm looking, no, I'm looking at the wrong Bent. Um, you, yeah, it was. You did something called Eagle in New Mexico. <laughs> I don't know what that was. That was a that was a, a, a program. I think about staged readings of of the works of uh, D. H. Lawrence, uh-huh. which but, got me onto the stage with Elizabeth Taylor and Tony Randall and. Uh, Many other uh, Trevor Howard and many uh, distinguished artists, but no, that that was before doing. Uh, but then, but then Amadeus was right after Bent. Yes, it was. Um, well, what what a chance that was. Um, Peter Hall, running the National Theatre, director of uh, the original production of Amadeus, there with the Paul Schofield, had been at the same college as me in Cambridge. Uh, and it is it's it's a it's a fact that someone should delve into a little bit more the influence of those Cambridge and Oxford trained actors and directors and indeed critics uh, who have uh, ruled the British theatre through my lifetime. You you, you take the the five directors of the National Theatre of Great Britain: Gambit Lawrence Olivier, who didn't go to uh, drama school. Uh, sorry, he did. He didn't go to university, and, and he was an actor, amongst other things. He, Peter Hall took over, who'd never acted, except at university, uh, and had been a director all his life, and he took over, and he had read English at Cambridge. He, he was followed by Richard Eyre, who did act, uh, but was also at Cambridge, Shortly after I was reading English at Cambridge, he read English, so did Peter Hall. Then we got Trevor Nunn taking over the National Theatre of Great Britain. Well, he was at Cambridge with me and was reading English. And the current director of the National Theatre is Nicholas Heitner, youngest of them all, who, guess what, read English at Cambridge. So uh, these connections are, are very powerful, and, and I've, been a, I've been very lucky to have been a beneficiary of them. And so Peter Hall, I'm saying, knew about my work and, and uh, liked it and thought I was reliable enough, I suppose, to, to take over from Paul Schofield when Paul said he just simply didn't want to go to, to play on, on Broadway again. He'd, he'd, he'd done it a couple of times and he wanted to do other things. I suppose Paul Schofield had wanted to go on doing it again. Maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. Luck, 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 luck. You've got to be ready for it, but it, when it arrives, it, it's chance. Well, you say we wouldn't be having the conversation. Certainly, you you were already very successful before you came back to Broadway to do Amadeus. Did that show, being in that show, pe- open doors very few for people you? In, very few people in New York, unless they <coughs> travelled regularly to London, could, could possibly have seen me. I wasn't available on screen very much, and uh, uh, and and not in person, so uh, that's what I, I meant by that. Hmm. So let me ask you about another part. I don't know whether to call it modern or old, but certainly there was much to do when you decided to do a pantomime a few years ago, mm-hmm. playing the Widow Twanky, which seemed 
absurd, given that you were this great classical actor and you had achieved motion picture fame at this point. What on earth were you doing doing a panto? Mm. Well, um, pan- pantomime is, is, is a Christmas time entertainment, which in my youth happened in every single city in the country. And it's a celebration of, of holiday time and, and mayhem, really, in which um, women play men's parts and vice versa. Uh, it's a hodgepodge, but a glorious one, of everything that theatre can possibly do. There, there, have to be, there has to be a transformation scene in the pantomime in which you cannot believe your eyes. Uh, or the characters wear outrageous costumes. They speak directly to the audience. They sing and they dance and they speak in verse. And they make you laugh, and it being a moral story, they probably touch your heart. All these things are going on, and audiences are seeing it in the company of their families. You can take a child of three to a pantomime, and and they're expected to enjoy it, and the grandparents will be there too. I think that's why, as much as anything, the Brits love theatre as much as they do. They are all brought up on it, not all, but enough are brought to a pantomime at an early age, uh, and love it. Uh, and are tempted to go back and, and to get more. Uh, so, I'm an audience who loves pantomime and, and, and owes it a lot uh, because of the enjoyment I've had watching other people at it. And the, the opportunity to just do that myself didn't seem... It's, it didn't seem to me outrageous. It seemed risky and that I can't dance and sing and, and that's required in pantomime. But... Uh, as I was saying earlier, I know how to tell a, get a laugh on stage more than I did, and uh, that's a big part of being Widow Twanky. And to play a woman... The point is, I was not impersonating a woman. I, I was playing a woman, uh, and that, <laughs> that's a distinction that Pantomime makes. The dame is never not a man. Uh, she is a man, but she's wearing women's clothes, and she speaks about women's concerns from a women's point of view, but she's a man. Mm. You'd say that was impossible until you see it. Uh, and and uh, I remember the author, Billy Brown, Australia, saying, Ian, it, it's easy for you. You just have to find the mother inside yourself. And I guess every man does have a mother inside himself or remembers his own mother well enough. And if you pour that love onto your wayward son, Aladdin, as he's um, trying to make his way in the world, the audience will adore you despite using bad language and looking a frump and... Um, and, and getting in everyone's way. <laughs> if you and I enjoyed it so much. I did it two years running. <laughs> uh, and I intend to do it again. Uh, but uh, like King Lear, Widow Twanky takes a lot out of you. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the first time those two roles have been compared. <laughs> if you will indulge me, I would like to quote from an interview that you gave 29 years ago this month to a student journalist writing for his school newspaper for the very first time, me. Oh, hello. (laughs) As an actor, I certainly learn as much from bad acting as I do from good acting, perhaps rather more. It's easier to see what's gone wrong when it's bad. Yeah. I have quoted you saying this for almost 30 years. I'm wondering, since we began talking about education and learning about theatre, how you respond to that statement now.
Yes, I, st- I still hold to it. And, um, and why I think you learn more from seeing what you might call a, a bad or poor performance than, than what you might think a good or glorious one is that the glorious performance will be because of something that you can't copy. It'll be intensely individual. It'll be to do with the person's personality and maybe their history in your life and their rightness for, for the, the part, which wouldn't apply if you were playing the part, maybe. Uh, except you can learn, well, I must try and play those parts that I really do think I'm going to be able to pull off, however difficult they may be, and be very sympathetic to the writing and so on. You might learn that. But if, if someone comes on and immediately holds on to the furniture, you know that actor's nervous. I went to see a world-famous singer the other day in London. And I was uncomfortable throughout the, the set in which people around me were shrieking with joy because this person simply didn't want to be on the stage. I could tell, I could read it in everything he did. He spends his life performing on stage. So I picked up that and was, uh, thought, well, you can't act unless you're at home on the stage. That's a general thing to learn. But you, you, you see people playing out front, uh, uh, and thinking the audience can't notice. Well, I notice, because I'm watching what's going on. Uh, getting a laugh in a cheap way, treading on the lines of another actor, getting in the way of the other actor. If You just remind yourself, I mustn't ever do that. I mustn't do that. Mm. So for me, it, I, I never regret seeing a performance which isn't fully achieved, because I probably learned something from it. But, of course, I would much rather go to a show and find everything uh, top-notch. Well, on that note, Surian McKellen, oh. I hope it will not be 29 years <laughs> before you and I speak well, again. Uh, well, I'm sure it won't be, and, uh, and uh, thank you very much. You've been very indulgent. Uh, well, thank you. Give my love to everyone uh, who cares about uh, American theatre, and I know all your members and associates do. And thanks for the opportunity to talk. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Taz Matar. Our post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded in the studios of Imachum Creative Services in London, and we thank them for their generous support. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.